I'm always really pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Conan Nolan. Conan Nolan is a political reporter for KNBC TV in Los Angeles and the host of News Conference, the longest running political and public affairs program in Southern California television. Over the course of 25 years, he's been everywhere and covered everything from reporting in Kuwait and Iraq and more importantly, to driving in front of O.J. Simpson's white Ford Bronco. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Conan Nolan. Thank you very much. Awfully sweet of you. Uh, it's a delight to be here. It's an honor and a privilege to be uh, ever asked by Zocolo to be part of one of these events. Uh, great fun, and thank you all for coming. Um, it's always odd to introduce somebody who's already here sitting on the stage just listening, but let me tell you a little bit about uh, the man you've come to see. Gavin Newsom is an interesting guy. In my industry, we're always interested in people that are, that are, in terms of politics, policy, and personality, bring a lot to the conversation. Uh, he is a um, fourth-generation San Franciscan. Uh, I remember when you ran for mayor of San Francisco, everybody thought you came from money. He didn't come from money. Father was a judge. Uh, he went to... Um, the University of Santa Clara, which is where uh, Irish Catholics in the Bay Area send their kids to be um, indoctrinated by Jesuits. Uh, Jerry Brown went there, and, and I don't know how many ancient Catholic scholars you recite like St. Augustine, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll perhaps get one or two in tonight. Um, from that, he went on to, uh, to start a business, a wine shop in San Francisco. And from there, ended up getting involved in politics. The, uh, the business took off, very successful in business ran for the uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. The city and the county are the same thing, so the council and the county is sort of a hybrid, so it's called the Board of Supervisors there. Uh, then in 2003, ran for mayor of San Francisco. As mayor, uh, I think people there will, will recite to you some quality of life issues that he dealt with, uh, one of which, of course, dealing with the homeless population. Uh, but, of course, he single-handedly put on the national map the issue of same-sex marriage. When he told the city clerk there... Uh, to go ahead and start marrying same-sex couples. The uh, City Hall in San Francisco, which is a beautiful building, turned into a chapel. Uh, there were people lined up uh, around the block, and he started a national debate. Uh, the California Supreme Court got involved, but I think, uh, to a large degree, uh, the President of the United States' involvement in this issue most recently is all the result of what started uh, by this mayor. Um, he decided uh, after seven years to run for governor, just took a look at Jerry Brown's poll numbers, then decided to run for lieutenant governor. <laughs> and uh, he's here with us. So the Honorable, the 49th Lieutenant Governor of California, the Honorable Gavin Newsom. Thanks, Conan. Thanks for the intro. <laughs> I'm so, going to vet the, the next introduction you do, but I'm grateful. There's a, um, a lot of people don't, under, don't re know this little bit of fact, but... Uh, John Dance Garner was a vice president under FDR. They asked him once, what's it like being a vice president? And he's the guy who said, uh, it wasn't worth a bucket of warm piss. Yes. Now, that, that, was, that was changed to spit later on. Yeah. But, so some have said that the office of lieutenant governor doesn't have all that much I to do. I think I said that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so tell us, how do you like the job? No, you know, I've, I've been, well, I, 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 I get in trouble because I try to be candid, uh, and then I regret the candidness. But, you know, I'll be honest with a difficult transition, 
coming from mayor of a city and county that was very active. I mean, I'm very proud of some of the work we did. We did first city in the United States universal health care, universal preschool, universal after school, highest minimum wage, paid sick leave. We did some really progressive and innovative things. And we also set, I think, the stage for a lot of the economic renaissance as it relates to what's happened in biotech, life science, nanotechnology, California Stem Cell Institute in San Francisco, and of course the high tech industry and software mobility. Uh, everything's happening, social, local, cloud. Uh, and I'm proud of that. So I came in with that kind of energy in the lieutenant governor's office and quickly realized uh, that I was running up against the reality of a job that has very few formal roles. I am on the UC Board of Regents, CSU Board of Trustees, wonderful uh, place to be, but difficult right now, right? We've doubled your tuition since 07, tripled it since 2001. Uh, we're struggling with $2 billion of cuts. I chair the State Lands Commission every other year, and that's turned out to be more enlivening than I anticipated and expected. So if you care about onshore oil drilling, let alone offshore oil drilling, things related to state properties, mineral management and the like, uh, that's become a very exciting place uh, to do work. Where I particularly found uh, my, my passion is the chair of the Economic Development Commission. The challenge is, with respect, uh, they, a lot of the commissioners haven't been appointed uh, by the governor. And so we're trying to get that commission going again. But I decided to go out and I, I did an economic development plan for the state uh, utilizing that role. Hired McKinsey and Brookings, went around and cased other people's joints all across the country, virtually and physically, to try to reconcile the economic realities in the state. And I look forward to talking more about that. But that matched my real passion of, uh, in, from the private sector. As Conan said, I, I came right out of college, Santa Clara, and opened a little wine store. And, yeah, just a few weeks ago, we opened our 15th business, now have close to 1,000 employees, restaurants, hotels, and wineries. And I say that not to impress you, but to press upon you that the issue of job creation and small business and entrepreneurialism has been really a big part of my life. And so to have the privilege of being lieutenant governor and the chair of this Economic Development Commission was exciting. Uh, but beyond those three or four things, that's about it. You don't sign legislation, you don't enter in labor negotiations, uh, you're not involved in a lot of the details of governance, which I miss greatly. So it's a long way away, away of answering your question. I had to adjust after that first year my expectations because I'll be candid, it was a frustrating first year in this position. Recently, the CSU have found a new president, and uh, weigh in on that. I, I, I yeah, saw we, your comment. We went through a, a process, a uh, national search. Uh, we interviewed just, uh, just day before yesterday three candidates down in Long Beach. Uh, we picked someone who's excellent. He's a UC Riverside chancellor. He's now going to be the chancellor of the CSU system. He's going to come in, hit the ground running, well-respected by faculty and staff, not only within the UC system, but well-known within the CSU system. Charlie Reed has been the head of the CSU system. Remember, 23 campus um, uh, system, one of the finest public university systems in the world. Truly is. We focus so much on UC, we forget about our CSU and community college system. Uh, but we, I think, picked an outstanding new chancellor, and I'm very enthusiastic about the choice. Now, ballot measure Prop 30, the governor's pitching it hard. I just talked to Molly Munger uh, earlier today of Prop 38. You have two ballot measures that are competing against each other, and the governor says that if Prop 30 doesn't pass and it's teetering uh, just above 50%, where are we with the CSU and UC budget? Well, they, you know, I, I didn't like this, but I get politics. I've been doing this for long enough. You know, we put a gun to the head a little bit to folks on CSU and UC costs, figuratively. Uh, 
250 million dollars of additional cuts are at stake if Prop 30 doesn't pass. Now, there was shrewdness in doing that because we know how much we all love the public, you, me, everyone else, the higher education system, that conveyor belt for talent. So you, you sort of start there because it pulls off the charts and you say, well, we'll have a trigger cut on something you really love if you don't do the right thing from the perspective of those advocating the right thing, and that's past Prop 30. What frustrates me is if it doesn't pass, we've put truly at peril uh, one of the greatest systems, as I said, of higher education in the United States. It cannot afford an additional quarter of a billion dollar cut. Uh, UC cannot afford another $250 million in cuts. So I, I don't like playing around with something as important as higher education. Uh, that said, that's the way they designed it with the budget, and that's what's at stake if Prop 30 doesn't pass for that system alone. Now, there are a number of groups, uh, California Forward, one of them, that have put forth some ideas to restructure the tax rate in California because right now it's a feast or famine. We depend on rich people to a far greater extent than most states do, and if they don't do well in Wall Street, then our coffers go south. Right. They've said you've got to start taxing services, yeah. and you have to spread out the tax rate a little more and bring it down. Guys like Eli Broad, who's a Democrat, gave to Barack Obama, says he's voting against Prop 30 because they need to face the problem of restructuring the tax rate. Well, I was in a lot of meetings with Eli. I also was part of... Uh, this Bergruen Institute and their efforts, the Think Long Committee that was working with California Ford. We have two big reform organizations right now that are probably in the lead in terms of specific prescriptive ideas uh, for reform in this state. And there's no doubt this state uh, is long overdue for some serious reforms. It is not an unfair critique of Prop 30 that it doubles down of sorts on the mess that we're in by saying we're going to continue to have a progressive tax code that is, as Conan says, feast and famine. As income taxes go up, or rather revenue for individuals go up, we'll generate more income tax, capital gains, we get those windfalls, and then we go through these boom-bust cycles. Uh, and that's a struggle for those that believe that it's long overdue for some serious reform, because we still tax the old economy as it relates to an industrial frame where really we're a service economy now. And so the idea of lowering the overall tax rate on sales tax and expanding its universe of what you tax is what Conan's referring to. I'll give you just one quick example. If you've ever golfed and you buy golf balls, you get charged sales tax. But if you get that round of golf that you buy, you're not charged a sales tax. So you question, well, who decided that? And there are hundreds and hundreds not thousands of other examples of that, where we can spread that tax base around and lower the overall effective rate so you pay less for your day-to-day -day activities. I think that's a reform well worth debating, but it's wildly controversial because that means we're going to tax people that haven't been taxed in the past, and that's never easy. So for whatever reason, and I don't think it's for whatever, it's the situational values that define the best at times, and I would argue more often the worst of politics, the situation demanded short-term thinking, the same thinking that got us in this mess, to quickly deal with the crisis at hand, and that's solvency. So we said this was the easiest tact because this is what we think the voters will do. So rather than changing the polls, we read the polls, and we went to a strategy that has a stronger likelihood of succeeding. The question is, if it doesn't succeed, will that at least be the moment 
where we can pause and reflect and suggest that we need a pattern interrupt, as they say in psychology, and start doing things dramatically differently in this state and start reforming uh, some of this uh, mess that we're in as it relates to going back to some of these old ideas that may have been good 10, 15, 20 years ago, but no longer are relevant to the world we're living in. You'll vote for Prop 30. Will you vote for Prop 38? This is Molly Munger's campaign that would uh, raise $10 billion for public education, K through 12. It would do it by increasing taxes across the board, but at different rates. The richer you are, the more you pay, but everybody's going to pay into it. And it's not polling well, yet I think most research indicates that most people won't vote for two ballot measures. They'll vote for one or the other. And they, and they normally don't like to raise taxes on themselves. They're happy to raise it on somebody else, but not themselves. Right. I mean, look, Prop 30 includes, it's not going to be advertised, but we have to be candid here. It includes a tax increase to every single one of us. It includes an increase in the sales tax. Uh, because there's only, way, there's only so much you can tax at the top. We'll go up to 13% or so on the high income, that only generates X billions. The only way to really get the revenue is we got increased sales tax. So 30 does increase taxes. 38 also increases your taxes because it's not just for quote unquote millionaires. It draws down that tax rate and goes up for folks earning middle income, a little higher income, goes for most folks. So look, it's two different approaches. Uh, Molly Mungers has a lockbox of sorts to take Al Gore's old line uh, for education. Uh, Brown's tax initiative goes to the general fund, which has a lockbox of sorts. That's Prop 98 that sets aside for K through 14 uh, support. But it is true the politicians can move things around. It relieves some of the stress on other things uh, at the state. And that's, of course, the debate going on. And I think we're going to see more friction between the two campaigns before this thing is done. Uh, I think 38 is worth a look. Uh, but the Prop 30 folks don't want me to say that. Um, I'm voting yes on 30. I, I don't, I won't support 38 because it does, I think, add to some of the confusion. Which one actually uh, goes into effect if both pass? Uh, what does and what happens to the rest of the budget? Health and human services, senior programs, programs for poor folks. If the general fund is not relieved, uh, Mungers is just education. Uh, I'm concerned about that. So that's where I'll end up. But good people can disagree on this. And uh, I, I'm not one of those people trying to take cheap shots at the Munger campaign. I admire someone to step up and step in and want to help. We know that K-12 education is starving for resources, but it also is starving for reform. And I'm of this humble opinion. I say this with respect. It absolutely needs more money. But money is not exclusively the solution to the educational crisis in this state. I think you could put another $20 billion, and I'm not sure you're going to have exponential return on that investment. We need an order of magnitude shift in our thinking of the approach. We need a new system of public education, not just reforming the existing system. That's my personal opinion. I'm happy to get into details about that. Well, to follow up on that... Uh Obama administration, Arne Duncan offered the state of California three quarters of a billion dollars to go in the classroom. Yeah. We said no because there was merit pay, because it, uh, it, it tinkered with, uh, uh, with the seniority system. What if that ends up as a TV ad by the no on 30 people? It could. I mean, we said yes of sorts. We did our own version of it. We got in the mix. We didn't win. It was a competition. Uh, we were out of the first year. We came back in and leaned in a little bit the second year uh, and didn't receive it. But I, but I get your point. Look, I, Conan, here's my thing. I, we're so caught up in, you know, race to the top and and, and somehow these magic bullets get rid of seniority or tenure and somehow education is going to be reformed. Everything's going to be fabulous. I, I, you know, agree or disagree, 
But with respect, I think we're missing a fundamental point. You still teach the same way we taught 150 years ago. The world has dramatically changed. The same reason we want to talk about changing what we tax, we should talk about how we change the way we teach. You still have rows of desks. You still have bells, the same bells that Ben Franklin was ringing. We still teach based on your manufacturing date, your age, with the same age cohorts. You're not all of the same age cohort. We still, greet, we still teach as if we're a fast food system. It's standardized. It's not focused on the individual. And, and so I just think there has to be a radically different debate. I'm all for debates, but not the same old tired debates that we're having on education. People learn best in groups. We know we have the tools of technology, folks like Sal Khan and the Khan Academy, guys like Sebastian Thrun and Udacity University, where they're flipping the classroom, where people are getting lectures at home, but doing homework in group settings at school where we're dramatically changing the approach through blended learning and adaptive learning and individualized learning, where people can rewind lectures so if they miss something, they can go back and pick it up. We know what works. We're just not doing it. We're so fixated on mayoral control, fixated on seniority, tenure, and on who's to blame as it relates to did we get a few billion dollars because we didn't sign up for some reforms on teacher evaluation. Again, all important. I'm not dismissing any of those reforms. I'm just suggesting we're missing the real debate, and that is what kind of world are we living in? And it's not the question we ask, so we sure as hell ain't answering it in Sacramento. We have got to wake up every day and ask ourselves, what world are we living in? It's no longer connected, it's hyper-connected. The rate of change is unimaginable to where it was just a few years ago. I just had a big conference with Tom Freeman. We had about 800 regional economic development leaders because I'm sick and tired of Sacramento and their lack of leadership on economic growth and job creation. I just don't think we get it and I'm sick and tired of sitting around waiting. So we decided to bring the regions together and we had a big conference up in Sacramento. It was a bipartisan conference, Secretary George Schultz, Laura Tyson and others. But I asked Tom Freeman in this Q&A that question of what world we're living in and he underscored this point by saying something that I thought was very profound and I think worth considering. Remember, Tom Freeman the New York Times columnist and wrote the book, The World is Flat. You may not like his politics, but the book, The World is Flat, was a profound book. And it changed our nomenclature as it relates to this connected world, this globalized world. He wrote that book in 2004 on the New York Times bestseller list in 2005. He made the point in relation to his new book called That Used to Be Us that has a damning chapter of California. If you haven't read that book, you should read it. He made the point that he went back in the index under F in the world is flat and Facebook wasn't there. This is 2005, not 1995. Facebook wasn't there. He said Twitter was a sound. The cloud was in the sky. 4G was a parking space. LinkedIn was a prison. Apps were things you filled out to get into UCLA. And Skype, for most of us, was a typo. Those things didn't exist, and they're now ubiquitous in our lives, making the point we're not living in a connected world, but a hyper-connected world. And we're dealing right now with the disruption of the merger of IT and globalization. That's a debate we need to be having. What world are we living in? And how do we compete, not just with cheap labor 
in China and elsewhere, but cheap genius. How do we compete with two billion people that weren't in the workforce 20 years ago? How does an economy the size of California, $1.9 trillion a year economy, the, the world's ninth largest, compete in that relationship with the world around us? How do we compete when you read in Wired Magazine or, or one of those Fast Company magazines about the new face of manufacturing? I saw an article the other day. This kid, he is a kid on his iPad the new face of manufacturing. He designed his product in Taiwan on his iPad. He manufactured his product by renting robots by the hour in China. He did all his fulfillment and distribution up there in Seattle at Amazon. He went to freelancer.com to get his brand and got his accountant on Craigslist. This world is complete, I mean, it's unimaginable than where it was five, 10 years ago. It's not about the three R's with respect now, reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's now about critical thinking. It's about collaboration. It's about communication. We have got to reconcile that, and we're not having that debate in this state, radically looking differently at education in the context of that world we're living in. And I have a three-year-old and one-year-old, and I don't want to raise my kids. These are digital natives, not the digital immigrant that I am and many of us here. They don't understand what blackboards are and what they mean. No, they don't understand a world that's not customized to their tastes and needs. They're engaging peer-to-peer, -peer, and they're increasingly dissatisfied and disconnected with government. And the new digital divide, as a consequence, is increasingly not socioeconomic. It's increasingly between government and the rest of us. And that is an ominous inflection that I think we have to reconcile. And I think technology is going to play a radical part of these reforms, but we have to embrace it and we have to champion it. I'm not talking about replacing teachers here. I'm talking about rethinking curriculum and reimagining our approach to this hyper-connected world and the one we're living in. What you sit on the UC Board of Regents and the State University Trustees. Mark Cuban, uh, Dallas Mavericks owner and uh, himself a multimillionaire, wrote a piece, a very interesting piece, about how higher education is failing American kids because it is, it, to a certain degree, what you uh, explained, but... It used to be that you went to uh, college and you, got a, um, you went into debt because you knew you were going to get a job that was going to pay off that debt. That's one of the reasons why the housing crisis is going to be dwarfed by the student loan crisis, because it's not happening. And so higher education has yet to evolve to teach kids the kind of things they need for the workplace in ways that empower them, such as online courses. Uh, and, and the institutions that you see in CSU, you, don't, you get the impression that they haven't evolved. They haven't. I mean, I'm, are, are they I'm part of the problem. I'm, you know, I'm having these debates. We're having task forces. And when we call for a task force, you know there's a problem. Uh, anytime, apologize. We'll have a task force. That's because there's no damn ideas. So, so we got a task force on online and blended learning. Now, look, you, you know, I'm not, you know, with respect to the Phoenix University, all these things, I'm not for those simple solutions. I'm for one like this guy, Sebastian Thrun. I mentioned him. Let me give you an example who this guy is. He's the world's expert in artificial intelligence. And you talk about radical opportunities for California's fate and future. Synthetic biology, genomics, all the work that's being done, robotics and sensors and AI. It's an extraordinary world we're living in and about to enjoy and experience. So Sebastian works at Stanford University. He's a leading expert. He teaches 200 kids a year. There's a wait list, mile long. He's been there forever. 
Sebastian got frustrated a couple years ago and said, you know what, I'm only teaching 200 kids. Why don't I run an experiment? I'm gonna run my course online. A sophisticated online interactive course that required collaboration, required pause and effect. Wasn't just one long lecture and you can rewind or just test to it. He put online, he thought a thousand people would sign up, maybe two. Week later, three, five, 10, 20, 20 plus thousand people signed up for his online course. When the course was done, he retested everybody, the 200 kids in his class and the 23 plus thousand on online. The top 170 that scored of the 200 all took it online. When asked why, they said, well, we could rewind you or we can fast forward you, Sebastian, with respect. That they were able to radically adjust their schedules and their lives around their passion for learning. He also then asked those 200 kids if for the next semester and the next iteration of the class if they wanted to take it in person or online. The overwhelming majority said, we prefer it online. This world's changing. He left Stanford to start Udacity University and is probably the most sophisticated person on this online thinking beyond the great work that Sal Khan is doing. This is exciting stuff. We're starting, UCLA is ahead of the curve at the UC system on this, to the credit of UCLA. But we're just starting to, faculty's worried about this. They're concerned about this. They don't, you know, people are nervous about it. I understand that. And we're not talking about replacing teachers and the importance of classroom settings. But we've got to sprint into the new century. We have an industrial model of education. It is substantively not changed. And technology has radically altered every other form of life except education. It is long overdue. And a higher education system needs to disabuse or disenthrall itself with the way things have been done and leap into this future as well. By the way, MIT has been offering all their courses online for free for years. That's an interesting fact and a proof point to the UC and CSU system beginning to evolve as well. We're going to take questions in a little while, so I just want to let you uh, know that if you have one, uh, we'll hear from it. Let's move on to a different topic. Um, it's somewhat related. We have two Californias now, and it is not divided by at the San Luis Obispo County line anymore. It's it's inland California, and it is coastal California. And if you talk to the uh, to the um, economists at uh, Anderson at UCLA, they'll tell you that there is a such a disconnect, and that the future is all on the coast. The housing uh, industry is not recovering at any time soon, and you have unemployment rates in some counties that are not just double digit, they're in their 20s or 30s. And so how do you bring these two coasts to, or these two parts of California together when they have such a, they're such a different position currently standing in terms of its economy, their employment opportunities, and, and frankly, there's also a racial divide there to a certain degree because you have some very uh, ethnic counties that are doing so very poorly in the agricultural community. Talk to us about that, the future challenge that we have coastal and inland. Nothing's drive my passion more than this question and the point you're making. We have a bifurcated economy, a hybrid economy, a coastal economy, where two days ago I left my hometown in Marin County, 6.3% unemployment, and yesterday I was down in Imperial County at 29.9% unemployment. To Conan's point, let me just underscore the new August numbers that came out that show we have five counties still with unemployment north of 15%, Calusa, Madera, Sarah, Sutter, and other counties, Tulare. 
We have 1,935,000 people actively seeking, and I make the point, actively seeking work that can't find it in the state of California. We have all these vibrant pockets, and they tend, to your point, be on the coast. You go on the inland, you still have close, just shy of 2 million homes that are still underwater. This in a state where we have over half a million job openings. In the past, you can move to where the jobs are, but if your home's underwater, you're not moving anywhere. You can't afford to move. So there's mobility issues that have radically altered that playing field as well. Imperial County, where we were yesterday, 48% of the jobs there in the agricultural industry. And the rest are nowhere really to be found. The whole point I was making about the merger of IT and globalization is there's a direct correlation between these two worlds that we live in in the same state. And that disruption, Comcast, 1,000 jobs, they're out of here. They just closed down their call centers in California. You read about that last week. Follow the next beta by Campbell Soup, 700 jobs. We're out of here. No interest. Over 254 businesses moved out of state, big businesses, in 2011. That changing face of the economy in California. We don't have a plan. There is no economic and jobs plan. We shut down our trade and commerce agency in 2003 at the time that Tom Freeman was getting that book contract talking about the world being flat, and we shut down. That was by, built up by Democrats and Republicans over decades, and they shut all those agencies down. Heck, I was the only elected official, and this is not a pat on the back, but I got so upset when we passed the free trade agreement with South Korea, it wasn't lost on me that the number one trading partner in America for South Korea is California. It should be self-evident that we should get a presence in South Korea. So I flew out there with the mayor of Irvine just to make the point that you matter and we care and that we've got to develop stronger relationships. I've been pushing the governor to open these offices in China. He finally said he would do it, but we need to get it done. We've got to get serious about this. I put an economic plan that specifically lays out what we can do to reconcile this what we can do in Imperial County, what we can do in San Bernardino, what we can do around Stockton and these cities that are going bankrupt or Atwater that's talking about going bankrupt in addition to Mammoth Lakes and, of course, what happened in Vallejo in 2007 in my own backyard. We went around the world, as I said, virtually and physically because one thing in my businesses is if you're not out there casing the joints of your competitors, they're casing yours. You have chamber of commerce offices that are set up from all over the country here in the state of California. Virginia has chamber offices here in California. Utah has multiple offices in Southern California. Austin, Texas. It's just not Rick Perry coming on hunting trips, hunting for jobs. It's the Austin Chamber of Commerce that has multiple offices here in Southern California, casing our joint 24-7 recruiting businesses, business growth into their states. They're competing with us, not just the folks in China, India, and Brazil, and elsewhere. We have got to step up our game. And the impact is being felt in a very rich socioeconomic way, as you say. And there is a racial component to this. You're absolutely right. 29% children's poverty in the Fresno, part, in Fresno region of the state. Higher I mean, we have more people, not only unemployed, we have more people living below the poverty line, more children living below the poverty line than the national average, more people uninsured. I mean, I'm a Democrat. My gosh, how can we think we're doing a good job with those kind of stats? We got to dis... I mean, just because you win office doesn't mean you're successful. 
We got, I mean, we've, there's no excuse. The Democratic Party, me and other Dem, we owe it to folks to fix this. The problem is there are no votes out there. Problem is those are all the red counties. All the votes are on the coast. Continue to do what you've done. We'll be richly awarded because we're doing pretty well. And so I, I've made it a big cause. I've been up to Lost Hills in the Fresno region three times just because I got to reconnect with my purpose. My hero is Bobby Kennedy. And I have a photo in my house of Bobby Kenny bending down on a knee talking to a young boy in the Central Valley as he was marching with Cesar Chavez. And to me, that's what life is about. That's why I got into politics. And I don't feel I've done justice to that photo and that passion and that sense of purposefulness. And so guys like me needs to step it up and we've got to start fixing this. But we laid out a very detailed plan and vision to do that. And I'm going to keep fighting the governor's office on this. I'm going to fight Sacramento on this. And we're going to work around them or through them until we start turning this thing around. Because you can't tax your way to prosperity, and we sure as heck can't cut our way to prosperity. We've got to grow our way to prosperity. I'm a progressive Democrat, but I know this. You create jobs, that creates revenue. That begins to solve a lot of our problems. Issues of homelessness, issues of poverty, issues of disease, issues of ignorance can be solved with right investments. But we need the revenues, and it's not just about taxing people and putting us in an uncompetitive environment. It's about growing a culture with startups, an entrepreneurial start, a framework of entrepreneurialism that can get this state moving again. You talk about going around the governor. Let's let's dogleg there for a second. Um, governors don't like lieutenant governors. I know it's nothing uh, personal. As as a, as a general rule, they would like you to be my like my Sheltie, which is uh, a, a shepherd dog who doesn't want anybody to move, gets upset if you go in the swimming pool, runs around the kids if they're playing, just wants everybody to be quiet. I don't think you're wrong. I uh, think that's so, 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 so sneak a peek here, because I remember talking to the governor's staff when you had the jobs plan, and they, they were not happy about it. They weren't. And what did they say to you, and what is your approach to the job now? Because after all, you were elected as well. Yeah, well, and, you know, I, I mean, clearly the governor reminded me he's the governor. I get that. Hey, good for him. I, admire, I think he's doing a great job at solvency. Where I'm frustrated, and I've been candid about this, and please, if anyone's writing about this, this is not an indictment of Jerry Brown. But we need to have a debate about greatness again in this state. You know, you, one thing I learned as mayor of San Francisco, you can't legislate spirit, you can't legislate pride. But when you find it, it's a remarkable thing. And Conan, you reminded me, we found that in 2004, and it was magical. And it elevated our sense of possibility. And it was remarkable. There were, there were no one sick in City Hall. People were showing up on weekends. It was a different spirit. And we used to have that in California. We talked, I mean, love or hate Ronald Reagan, but I like when he talked about that coast of dreams. There was something evocative about that. You know, what was missing when he talked about that shining city on the hill was self-evident to a lot of us, the things he didn't see in that shining city. I get that. But we need a little bit about that again. You know, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, we were the tent pole of the American economy in job creation. We grew at an annual rate of 3.7%, the golden years of California. The last three decades, for some folks said, well, we want to get back to where we were before Lehman Day, September 15, 2008, before the macroeconomic wheel fall off. Missed the whole point. Since 1980 to 2010, you've seen a precipitous trend line here. Not a headline in the last few years, but a trend line from 3.7% annual growth rates to 1.1%. The nation's actually outperforming California in job creation at about 1.2%. We've become average. This is a state of 
dreamers, of doers, of entrepreneurs, of innovators that's long prided itself on being on the leading and cutting edge of new ideas. We're not about being average. So we have got to step up our game and have a debate about greatness again. What world are we living in? How do we reconcile the reality of the loss of manufacturing jobs? How do we bring those? What are the jobs of the future? How are we going to compete with a cheaper China and India and Brazil, those big countries, but also Alabama that's taking our jobs? Nevada, not just Texas. The fact that Deval Patrick is out here casing our joint as well in Massachusetts. Are all those jobs we're losing to Oregon and Washington State. What are we going to do to compete to make a case for California again? And so the friction on the jobs plan and the governor and I was sort of manifested around that, a frustration that we're not prioritizing that as I think we should and could be. It's not a cheap shot at the governor. God bless him for the work he has to do to deal with solvency. I was mayor. I hated guys like me took those shots. I'm not taking a shot, but it's a notion of and versus the tyranny of or. It's not one or the other. We can do both. Uh, and I, I just think we've got to step that up. Uh, or we're, in, we're, we're gonna we're gonna suffer and we're gonna debate about failing more efficiently and I don't want to debate about failing more efficiently that's why I say it's time for order of magnitude change in education order of magnitude change as it relates to job retention and economic growth order of magnitude change as it relates to welfare reform in this state and opportunities on homelessness and I just I come down here all the time Joe's with me all the time he knows I love walking skid row my gosh what I, I mean, my God, this is not an indictment of local leadership. This is an indictment of what's happened in this nation. Where's the leadership on homelessness in California? We've been trying for a year and a half to create an interagency council on homelessness in this state. They won't do it. It's frustrating. That was the passion of my life as mayor. It was my failure and success. But we've got work to do here. So there's a lot of opportunities in this state. And you know, that means we should be working more collaboratively together. And I, I stand absolutely here to support the governor. I want him to be the most successful governor in history because he needs to be. We need him to be. But I also like to be utilized, and I think we have some things to offer, and so I continue to extend that. Uh, jobs, the economy, homelessness, and uh, a lot of other things, and I look forward to the call. Let's talk about homelessness. Let's talk about where we are right now. This is a Grand Park. Uh, hats off to Supervisor Molina for putting this together. Uh, it's a it's a grand. You should be here on the weekend. It's a great great place. Yeah, she's done a uh, great job. And I told the mayor it's a little like Sanford. Sanford. It's a don't, little. Don't don't say that to Antonio. He won't <laughs> like that. <laughs> but the the new urbanist said years ago, and it's taken root here that the the new the. Their people are gravitating back to cities. San Francisco never had this problem, but now we see in Los Angeles people moving back. We have the first uh, supermarket in, since World War II that opened up a couple of years ago, another one coming down. But you have the gentrification of certain areas, the movement of homeless. You have some, some major urban issues to deal with, and I know that you dealt with them as well in the south of Market area in San Francisco. How does a city navigate without help from the state on an issue like homelessness, when you have areas that are, USC for example, USC wants to expand but there's a pushback because now students are renting homes that used to go to single families. I love that. Once a mayor, always a mayor. Uh, there's a great book out said, if mayors ruled the world, fabulous book. Look, the one form of government I think is still working is local government. Because at the end of the day, I remember as mayor, if I announced a democratic plan to clean up graffiti, people would just roll their eyes and say, what the heck are you talking about, democratic plan? There's no Republican plan for cleaning up 
uh, the streets any more than there's a Democratic plan for cleaning up graffiti. But when you get in the state, there's a Democratic plan for job creation and a Republican plan. It's it just dull. It really is. We, we spend so much damn time at the state level and federal level talking about how we can find a crowbar and put it in the spokes of the wheel of the other party, trip them up to win the news cycles, as if that's somehow some wonderful example of success. Local government, you can't get away with that long time. It's cause and effect, good decisions, bad. As much as we love to beat up our local city council members or members of the Board of Supervisors or Mayor, at the end of the day, it still functions remarkably well. And this is the era of urban life. A few years ago, we passed, first time in human history, more people on the planet are living in urban centers and suburban and urban areas combined. Million to million of people every single week are moving into cities. And you want to get serious about climate change? What is total consumption, if not the sum total of all local consumption? That local consumption disproportionately emanating from cities. Mayors, literally, the fate and future in many respects of this planet, as it relates to the issue of climate disruption, is on the backs of local officials. So it's a very exciting and enlivening time, uh, local government. But with it come the challenges Conan talked about, issues of gentrification and the, the issues of dealing with people living together across every conceivable difference, regardless of race, religion, sexual orientation, regardless of their rich or poor. And therein lies the challenges. But there lies the great opportunities. The issue of homeless, look, you, you can't manage. We've got to stop managing this problem. We've got to start solving it. I love the continuum of care, but not as much as I love a direct access to housing model. I did something pretty radical in San Francisco. We got rid of all the cash. This is coming from a lifelong Democrat. We thought we can buy our way out of the problem by just giving more money to folks. And I realized there was no amount of money we could ever give to solve this problem. So we did something called care not cash. And you think things like gay marriage were controversial. Two things I did that were more controversial, care not cash and requiring composting in our city, but that's another topic. <laughs> Seriously, that's still, to this day, is garbage police. Uh, but, but this issue of homelessness, look, you want to solve homelessness, the quickest, shortest way is to deal with housing. But then once you stabilize a person, you got to deal with all the underlying reasons that are out in the streets and the sidewalks in the first place. People that are duly diagnosed with drug or alcohol addictions, people that are self-medicating, that have bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, paranoia, depression, physical ailments, educational deficiencies, all kinds of things. Talk about needing a customized system, not a standardized system, to solve individual problems. So we moved to this DAB program, this direct access to housing program, with great success. We did something called Project Homeless Connect that engaged the public in unprecedented ways. Thousands of volunteers making it our problem, citizenship redefined and engagement. Uh, we worked with this Care Not Cash model to dramatically expand with that cash we were sending out to, to expand our supportive housing programs. And we reduced our population on our cash assistance by over 80%, these are facts, and our street population by just a third. Now that's not good enough. You come to San Francisco, you say, what about the other two thirds? Well, it's not a static population, it's dynamic, and there is no having made it. Success is not a a place, it's a direction. And so this state needs to step in and support Los Angeles. It needs to support the city and the county. The state does nothing substantively to direct any energy on the issue of homelessness. It does nothing. New York State has a New York, New York model, the state of New York and New York City. That's a model for California. But when was the last time you heard in a gubernatorial debate, let alone a presidential debate, the word homeless? It's just not a priority. 
and it is the physical manifestation of our failure as a society and certainly as a governance institution. And we have got to turn it around. You know, there's an old adage, and this maybe goes back to my Jesuit education, but I think it was Aristotle said, you can't live a good life in an unjust society. Where's the justice stepping over someone on the sidewalks on the streets? So I don't matter how damn good your life is, it's connected. That web of mutuality Dr. King talks about, we're all bound together by a web of mutuality. The Bible teaches us, this is Santa Clara, we're many parts but one body. And when one part suffers, we all suffer. We're all in this together. And so this is an issue, again, that drives real passion, but it needs to drive the passion of state legislative leaders. And there's ways of avoiding gentrification, mixed income housing. You can create a framework with urban info. I mean, there's, some, there's a renaissance happening. You're seeing it right here with new thinking. Your city council starting to do it now, doing density bonuses around transit corridors, mixing arts and cultural, dance, music, theater. By the way, all essential elements of the education system. It's not just teaching us above our shoulders. It's teaching us below our waists. That also matters. The importance of the creative arts. There is no apple without creativity. Look in the back of your iPhone. It says designed in California, assembled in China. But that design in California is critical. So these are all components of this renaissance of urban life, not only in America, but around the world. It's an exciting time. We went through the greatest generation, 1950s, 60s, and 70s, to the grasshopper generation, 70s, 80s, and 90s. We were like locusts, and we basically ate up everything the greatest generation did. Now it's the regeneration. It's the opportunity for people power. You have all the solutions in your pocket. You have the tool of technology to do what none of us could have imagined, again, just a few years ago. We have a distributed, networked, collaborative environment where solutions are in your hands. It's an exciting time and an enlivening time. And so I don't think there's a better place to be than in urban environments like Los Angeles, San Diego, LA, San Jose. And so hats off to cities and mayors. I have great admiration and respect. We're going to turn it over to questions from the audience. Uh, but uh, before we do, are you running for governor? <laughs> no, I, I, I've said this. I, I hate those politicians that know the answer to that question but won't give it to you. Of course, you're then criticized for being overly ambitious when you answer them honestly, but who, I, I can't believe I'm still in politics after all the things that I've been involved in. Um, but, no, I made it clear, look, if Jerry doesn't run, I, I'd like to run, and, and if I'm not the right person at the right time, if I don't have a vision to offer and it makes no sense, then you'll have plenty of choices. Um, and, uh, but, I, but I still feel like I have a little bit left in the tank. And uh, I have a little bit to offer. And I, I you know, I don't want to plug a book, but I got a book, so I just did. <laughs> and I didn't do it for any gubernatorial thing. Honestly, it wasn't even in the cards. But it is coming out next year. And it's called Citizenville, and it's about citizenship. And it's about the it's about the town square. And it's about civic engagement. And it's about reconciling the fact it starts with LA. And you, you're one of your last races where 88% of registered voters did not vote for seven or eight city council races, nine or ten big ballot initiatives. And there was no headline because, well, big deal, 87% of people didn't vote in the previous election. And it's not like they, they stayed home. You can stay home and vote. <laughs> so what is it? Why are we increasingly going peer-to-peer? -peer? How many of you have heard of Donors Choose? It's an amazing thing, right? Where you can, people are just using their archiva.org. 
People are increasingly just bypassing government and are increasing. I mean, we have an empathetic. This next generation is the most empathetic and engaged any time in human history. But they're not engaged in their city halls. They're not engaged in their state and federal governments like they were. And I think this is a huge issue. And so this book talks about solutions, not just problems. And we went around the country, interviewed 68 people from Bill Clinton on down to talk about how we can reinvent government in the 21st century. And, and, and I, I'm really proud of this book. I don't, you know, it's not, you know, there's no scandals in there, not exciting, you know, biography. I wish I, you know, had something, you know, like that. But, but it's pretty straightforward what to do, not who's to blame book. And, um, and if it makes sense to folks and they think it's a different approach, and if there's an opportunity to, to put myself on the ballot and it makes sense, then happens. If it doesn't, I get to go back to restaurants, hotels, and two of the greatest kids God ever conceived, Hunter and Montana. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm happy to do that and come to work for all of you somewhere because I'll need a job. I remember when uh, Jerry Brown uh, was sworn in and um, the 73-year-old governor introduced his, I think it was his 98-year-old aunt. And uh, when I saw the lieutenant governor later, I says, you know, that was for you. <laughs> By the way, he told me it was for me after. You ain't kidding. <laughs> Just if anybody had any idea how long the governor of California can live. So we'll take some questions here. I'm Jeff Warner, and I'd like to ask about pensions, because government pensions seem to be causing a tremendous physical problem for both the state and cities and counties. And I got to guess... Two questions. Since the average government pension is only about $25,000, uh, where is the big problem? W what is the origin of the big problem? How much is it that these government units didn't properly fund them the way they should have? And how much is really due to the recession that we're still in? And if, and if it's due to the recession, the stock market's back almost to 13500 why haven't they recovered? I think there are three things that are going to define the debates in the next century, certainly the next half century, and that's the issue of IT and globalization, which I talked about, issues of debt and entitlement, which we haven't talked about until now, and the issue of energy and climate change. And I just did a, a climate summit uh, energy conference down in Palm Springs yesterday, and I am intense about this issue, and you should be as well, having driven by those $5.05 .05 -cent gasoline prices. Uh, that said, issue of pensions. You know, five years ago as mayor, we started tackling our pension curb. And we did two rounds of pension reform when I was mayor, and they just completed a third round. I take this very seriously. I think pensions are a progressive issue because increasing there, they're squeezing out the discretionary budgets so we have less money to invest in anti-poverty programs, educational programs alike. That being said, I don't like the blame game against labor because you asked a very shrewd and thoughtful question. My dad's one of these pension folks, and he's not getting these $150,000 pensions that get all these headlines. Few people are, but it does drive people to obvious concern. And there are abuses of spiking. And we haven't been fully funding our pension system. And we got overly generous when things were going particularly well in the late 1990s, particularly 1999 and all the counties started following suit after the state of California led. You have to, we must take the pension issue seriously because the trend line is ominous as it relates to squeezing out the discretionary budgets of municipalities, as you note, states and the like. How did we get there? We, we get got there? here because we didn't fund, we got here because we were all parting. <laughs> we just were. We were here, you know, 
there's a great book that Dove Simon wrote called How. It talks about situational values versus sustainable values. The greatest generation was in the future business. They understood if you didn't invest in the future, you're not going to do very well there. I talked to you about others, talked about this grasshopper generation, which is a situational generation. We did whatever the situation called for just to get by. So it was good politics for the politicians who were making the deals. And as an employee the state, you're thinking this is great, our city, it's fabulous. I don't have to make a big contribution. State's not making big contribution. Everything's going great because the stock market's going through the roof. All this good revenue coming in the cities and the state coffers, we're fully funded. What's happened, though, is that $13,000 in the market hasn't necessarily translated in the coffers of the state general funds. And so we don't have the resources to step up our, our, our spending obligation. So when the macroeconomic wheels fell out, we were kind of exposed. It's the old adage, you know who's wearing a bathing suit when the tide goes out. We weren't wearing anything. And we were kind of exposed. We weren't prepared. And so now, because of the housing crisis, the boom bust, Wall Street, yes, pension system was exposed, and we do have a real problem on our hand. But it's not the reason San Bernardino went bankrupt. It's not the reason Stockton went bankrupt. It was a contributing factor, but it wasn't the only factor. The bigger factor was the housing boom bust and what happened on Wall Street. And so that, I think, answers the second part of your question. But do not underestimate the significance of this pension challenge, please. And the wall of debt we've accrued, that has nothing to do with pensions. Remember, pensions are two things, unfunded health liability, and that's what scares me more. There's nothing that should unite the business community, private and public sector, labor, unions, like than the issue of health care. As a as business person, there's nothing that scares me more than the runaway cost of health care. That's why, by the way, in San Francisco, we did health care, not health insurance. And there's a major distinction. Because I want to create a competitive environment against the insurance industry. Good people can disagree. But my only fear about Obamacare, which now the president has embraced as nomenclature, and I support, is the cost curve component is not yet as obvious to me as it is to the president and some others that say it's there. And so I'm really worried about the unfunded health care liabilities as much or more as the pension costs. We did a down payment. We did a pension reform recently just a few weeks ago. That is a good first step, but it's by no means the last step. As I said in San Francisco, we did three bites. I don't think you can do it all overnight. You've got to do it incrementally, and you do it across the bargaining table. Because one thing I've learned in life, my mom always taught me that, I never understood it, but if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, you got to go together. And I think any of us that want to reform education, reform government, to be more flexible and nimble in the civil service, we have to do it across the bargaining table. I do not subscribe to the Scott Walker approach to reforms. I think those are short-term and foolish. I think we've got to do it together, and that's a better approach. My name is there Leah. Hi. <laughs> I'm studying um, public administration at um, Cal State Northridge under the leadership of uh, Warren Campbell, Professor Warren Campbell. Um, my question to you is um, legislation gets passed and often it takes a while before the benefits of the legislation can reach various programs to help people uh, due to the bureaucracy. I just want to know what is your view on making government more flexible and responsive? February 11th, Penguin Press, Citizenville, my book. It's all about this. Uh, 
I know, shameless. It's the first time I'm dyslexic. The idea of writing a book is beyond me. It's so exciting. I'm proving my teacher's wrong. I can write. Well, you'll be the judge of that. I don't know if I can. Uh, nothing more important than flexibility in the world we're living in, this hyper-connected world. We've got it. We've, we, we, I, I got a lot of critique when I advanced some pretty aggressive civil service reforms in San Francisco. Folks weren't particularly happy about that. It is absolutely essential. We have got to make our bureaucrats and bureaucracy as creative as so many of you are. We have to. We have to create a more entrepreneurial mindset in the way we govern. Why is the private sector so successful by and large with so many breakthroughs versus the public sector? Is because we have, understandably, a risk aversion. Guys like me are scared to death of tomorrow's headline. There's nothing worse than listening to Conan talk about some screw-up on tomorrow's newscast. So success is defined by not failing. When success in the private sector is defined by failure, learn from your mistakes and move on. In my business, we have a failure award. We reward the biggest screw-up every month in my business because I want people to take initiative. I don't want people to abdicate responsibility and point the finger. We learn from those mistakes. We don't repeat them. But I think that mindset needs to find its way. So I'm a huge advocate of flexibility and civil service reform and work rule reform. Again, through a collective bargaining framework. We were successful doing a lot of creative things in San Francisco. Not as successful as I'd hope. I don't want to oversell it. But I really think this is essential to the long-term viability of labor unions as well. Because the trend line for labor is not very positive in this country. And I'm worried about that as a guy who thinks the issue of health care and income inequality are the dual crises of our lifetime. And there is no solution I can figure out without labor's strong advocacy and support to fight for the middle class and working families and living wages. We need a vibrant labor movement in this country. And I do think labor can enhance its efforts by looking more flexibly at civil service systems and rules to bring more people on board to support their efforts. So most educators like myself are in strong agreement that we need this technology. So my question is, how are we going to get the money to pay for this technology that's coming up? No, that's great. Look, I I'm with you. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing that you do what you do with such limited resources and lack of support. And that's why I say we got to go together. And there are no more creative minds, entrepreneurial minds, no stronger reformers than I've ever met than the teachers themselves are on the front lines. I say that with all frontline employees. They're never the problem. It's oftentimes some of the management that's disconnected from the reality of a teacher in this 21st century. So, look, here's the good news, bad news. You may have read a big article that was, got a lot of attention that showed there's substantially more people in India with smartphones than toilets. <laughs> now, you may say, what the hell is he talking about in the context of this? It suggests something very profound. As the costs of these tools of technology drop, the opportunity presents itself to answer your question self-evidently. PC is dead. It's all about mobility. The cost of mobility is dropping exponentially. We have a whole generation of digital natives. They're not going to understand any other way of learning. I mean, I don't mean this pejoratively. I, there was an interesting article up north 
about a big problem in our homeless shelters in San Francisco about everyone's cell phones being stolen that were trying to be charged. And it was just a suggestive proof point. So my point to you is, as the cost goes down, as support and understanding the capacity, the relationship to you and the world we're living in increases, that I think this has become less and less of a barrier. The notion of a $1,000 laptop or even a $100 laptop, I think, is changing dramatically. But one thing I do know is big is getting small, and small is getting big. That inside out is being replaced with outside in. That the notion of hierarchy is dead and one-way conversations are over. That the world is lateral, not linear anymore. It's organic. It's not a machine brain, as my friend Eric Liu talks about. It's a garden brain. And what I mean by that is there's something dramatic shifting and changing in consciousness and approach. The whole idea of teaching is changing as a consequence. Peer-to-peer, side-by-side, distributed. And that's what's so exciting and so enlivening to me in terms of the opportunities of reform working side-by-side -side with you and teachers that are on the front line. And it, it, it makes me also believe this, and I, I know we'll have one or two left, but I, I do believe this. And the more I travel across the state, and I've been one of the great gifts of being lieutenant governor is being able to travel all over the darn place because you got the time to do it, I say lovingly. Uh, is there's, I, I mean this, there is simply not a problem that you can identify that has not been solved by somebody somewhere. There is not a classroom challenge. There's not a preschool problem, after school problem, foster care problem, homeless problem, drug or alcohol problem. You can't come up with a problem where we cannot collectively identify leaders that have been at it for years with innovative solutions. The only real problem is our inability to scale these good ideas and equally distribute these solutions. And that's where I think technology is going to play a profound and exciting role in the future. So again, that's why I remain very optimistic. Hello, my name is Nestor Limas, and I'm a, a worker at Santa Monica Family College, and I live over here in Echo Park. And I just three quick questions. One is I travel a lot, and I a lot of German firms. Uh, specifically and also recently about the French railroad company, there's a lot of interest in investing in California, yet there's for a lot of these firms, they're not able to invest for some odd reason. Is it because of how Sacramento is operating or is it because, what recommendations do you have that would further uh, provide, you know, uh, an easy way for these companies to operate here? Second of all, since the set of California, uh, currently, we're losing a lot of our uh, film industry. They're going abroad. What is California doing in order to prevent further loss of this? And last, my mom actually owns a business down the street here. And what what is the state of California doing to provide a, a way for small businesses to thrive? Or what where can they go if they want more information as to uh, regulations or what have you? I'll, do, I'll start with a film because I just, at the Commonwealth Club last week, I got to be Conan and interviewed uh, former Senator Chris Dodd, who runs the Motion Picture Association. And we talked about all these uh, films that are bleeding all around the world, how we're competing with Wellington, New Zealand, competing with the rest of the globe as it relates to all these runaway productions, post-production, pre-production, and films. Of course, 
California is not only competing overseas, obviously we're competing with Louisiana now and New Mexico and I can go on and on from Michigan and New York, et cetera. One of the good things to answer your question there is the governor, to his credit, supported through legislative assistance an extension of what Governor Schwarzenegger did near the end of his term, and that's some tax credits to try to be competitive, but doesn't include commercials, doesn't come close to where it needs to be, and we're going to have to see a heck of a lot more support when we got to step up our game here again, or we'll do what we did in California, and that is if you don't invest in your lead, you start losing that competitive advantage. And so this is an area where there's so much evidence that this is not just red carpet in the Oscars. These are the folks putting up the lights. These are the caterers. These are the folks sitting here uh, with the security. These are the folks we're supporting, and we've got to get serious about this. So, in our, and by the way, one of the first things I have in my economic development plan is talking about some specific strategies to answer that question. The second thing is, no, who the heck do you call as foreign We have no foreign trade office. I told you the South Korea example. We shut it down in 2003. I mean, there I think it's 22 offices in Pennsylvania overseas. And they share the overhead with Maryland and with some folks down in Florida that I think are joining. I mean, these guys are serious about this. We're not. I don't know who to call. I think you call something called GoBed or GoBiz. And there's some good people there, but there are a handful of them. And I say that as a guy, as an employer that didn't even know they existed, and as a mayor 70 miles away that never knew they existed. It's not their fault. They just haven't been supported as they should. And that's something else we very specifically recommend in terms of detailed reforms to step up our game. Direct foreign investment. Promoting the EB-5 program. You don't need to know what it is, but no one knows what it is. And it's a great opportunity for this state. And it's mesmerizing to me that we're not promoting it all around the world. Your final point about small business. Look, there's a great study. Everyone talks about, well, small business is all the net. You know, big business loses, cuts jobs. Small business creates jobs. It's not even small businesses. It's startups. There's a wonderful study that came out. Another one of those Kaufman studies. There's like 10 of them. But this one showed between 1977 and 2010, 77 to 2010, with the exception of seven years, there was not one year where it wasn't startups that created net new jobs. It's startups. It's not even my businesses. Small business may not even be your mom's. We have got to create a climate to support, though, your mom's growth and the growth of other like-minded people that want to take risks and support small business growth. So we lay out literally 28 specific details. Go, I hate to say, go on my website, you'll get the plan, and, and you'll see specific strategies that I think are a little different than some emanating from Sacramento. But do not wait for Sacramento. We've got to flip this. I'll just say in closing, if you don't like the way the world looks when you're standing up, stand on your head. Go local. Because there are amazing things happening locally, all across this state. There's not, an LA included, some wonderful programs supporting startups, small businesses, some wonderful things. So we've got to flip this thing. I said hierarchy's dead, big is getting small, small is getting big. That's what I mean by that. We've got to flip this, not just flip the classroom, but flip the approach to jobs and economic development. And Conan, at peril of these mics shutting off, we also need to do this in closing. Read our own history. Why were we so successful in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? It wasn't by accident.
And this was the conversation Tom Freeman and I were having at this economic summit. And he reminded us of this formula for success. It started with education. We always taught up to or past technology. Now, to your earlier question, we're having a difficult time teaching up to technology. The number one complaint in Silicon Valley, the number one complaint down in, in parts of San Diego and even here, is we can't educate enough talent. That's why we have hundreds of thousands of job openings. It wasn't just lack of migration from the Central Valley to the coast. It's that we're not educating people fast enough. We're not conveying enough talent. Second, we were in the future business. We invested in robust infrastructure. I flew from Incheon Airport. Any of you been to South Korea, just go online, check out the Incheon Airport. It's an amazing thing. They don't have the environmental rules we have. They filled a damn ocean with a big island. They have two golf courses. You want to be delayed at the Incheon Airport because <laughs> you got so many damn amenities. Now, you know, you can fly in almost any airport in California, and it's like going from the Jetsons out there to the Flintstones. It just is. We have $765 billion of deferred maintenance in infrastructure. And you're asking the question, how do we get foreign direct investment? It's mesmerizing. We can't answer that question in this state. So education, infrastructure. Third, if you weren't conveying talent through the system of higher education, we always got first round draft choices. We were always able to get the best and the brightest because we had the most open immigration policy going. We got it. We understood the vibrancy. Diversity for diversity's sake, that's not something to celebrate. It's when you activate that diversity, there's something to celebrate. And California, at our best, is always a state where people are living together and advancing together across their differences because we don't tolerate that. We celebrate it. Third, or rather fourth, robust research and development, always pushing the limits of discovery. And I just think about Sacramento, where I drive up and down. Within 100 miles, Sacramento, Sandia Labs, Lawrence Livermore Labs, Lawrence Berkeley Labs, NASA Ames, UCSF, where biotech was conceived, Genentech in 1979, UC Davis. Think about those four areas. We were the envy of the nation in K through 12 education not so long ago, not just higher education. And you've seen what's happened. You've seen what's happened in the infrastructure. That example, the airports, is just one example. And the debates you're having here, wonderful debates, positive outcomes around transportation funding, creativity with Prop J, I hope you support, and the Prop R work that went so on, or Measure R down here. And of course, open immigration. You heard those Republican debates. It was about who can electrify a fence more than the next guy. I don't mean to be so pejorative, but go back to those, those debates with Santorum and Bachman. And that was the debate we were having on immigration. I mean, it's just scary. And you saw the Ryan budget on research and development. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. So we have a formula. So we have to reinvigorate it. We've got to reinvest in it. Let's read our own history. Because as Freeman said, and that used to be us, the subtitle of that book is we're competing with the world we invented. So dare I say, final words. What Bill Clinton said so evocatively and powerfully that there's nothing wrong with California that cannot be fixed by what's right with California. So thank you all very much for being here. Governor, thank you. One, one, one final request. When you go back to San Francisco, be sure to tell people that you spent a Friday night talking to a large crowd in a park in downtown Los Angeles. They will think that you're nuts. Your heart out, San but it's 
It's a long-standing tradition to spend a Friday night with an interview. Thank you all very much. It was great uh, fun. And, uh, Governor, good luck to you, and thank you very much. It was very nice.